Morning Liberty. Well, what is up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of Good Morning Liberty. My name is Nate Thurston. It's just me, but my guest today is Micah Safestem. He works as a communications and outreach coordinator at the Utah Water Research Laboratory. We're going to be going through one of his pieces in the Salt Lake Tribune today, and he is a contributor for Young Voices. All of his links will be in the show notes. Let's get into the interview. My name is Micah Safeston, and I am a writer on uh, public policy issues facing the West, particularly in my home state of Utah. Um, and I focus a lot on, on natural resources policy and um, with a special emphasis on water because that's such an important issue. And that's mostly what my own professional background is. Um, I, I work at the Utah Water Research Laboratory, which is a uh, the, the oldest and largest um, research institution in the country um, where that conducts water-related research um, at, here at, at Utah State University. Um, but most of my, my writing on my own is, is uh, outside my day job, and, and I have a, a background um, just in, in Utah and, and national politics, um, centered particularly around, around natural resources policy. Um, so my own writing is, is typically focused on how principles of the free market and private property can, can help the, the uh, problems related to drought and water quality, um, which we see so much here in the West. Yeah, that's really why I wanted to have this uh, conversation today. You know, when you talk about water conservation, maybe it's not the topic that's uh, right at the top of everyone's mind all the time. But I thought this was a really good conversation because you talk a lot about how market incentives would actually do a better job conserving water than just government bureaucrats. And that a lot of people will assume the opposite when it comes to that because they just think about greed and they think no one will be able to have water, so we'll, we'll have to tackle all those issues. But since we all need water to survive, and we're making the argument that market incentives would actually do a better job allocating that, I love that conversation because that means you could really trust the market with pretty much everything if you can trust it with water. That's right. It's it's counterintuitive. Our our impulse, our first impulse, is typically to... to uh, assign the, the the duties of conservation to some big overarching authority and the bigger the better um, but that, that's I think I think history shows us that's exactly wrong uh, that it is it is better to let individuals who are close to the water they need to conserve to let them make those decisions they have, have the skin in the game they're able to to know best how much water they need and and they also are know best how to work with the parties around them who also need water. Um, and when you have these these big overarching authorities like the federal government uh, dictating these rules, they're so far away. And that's not that's not an indict a moral indictment. That's just it's just a practical one. Uh, it's impractical for the Bureau of Reclamation to to manage this from afar when when individual players have have a much better knowledge do you think it has a lot to do with fear like we just we have to have water if we don't have water you know we're, we're all going to die so we're too scared to let the the market take care of that do you think that has something to do with it i do i do i it's frightening here in utah to look at the great salt lake to see the pictures of what it looked like in the 1980s 
when there was actually a threat of it flooding and we were installing uh, pumps to pump water out of the Great Salt Lake and to see how it's how it's uh, become so desiccated today. And and that is frightening. And and the the impulse is to to do something now. And to be clear, there is a lot that we can do now. But the the impulse, the most obvious, the closest weapon to hand, as it were, is to just lock down and say, say, who's using the most water? Well, the answer throughout most of the West is farmers, agriculture. And and then to say, oh, we, we need to take that away from them. And and that's just wrong. And that I mean it's 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 not just wrong in that it infringes on on property rights, but it is impractical and, and it is it won't actually work because you cannot simply tell a farmer who has a canal running through his property that it's illegal for him to take water from that canal. You can't stop him from doing it, even if you were to make it illegal. It, you're not going to be able to make that work. Let's stick on farming for a minute. So just so you know a little bit of my background, I come from a farm family. My my grandpa, grandpa before him, my dad, my brother, they're all farming. I'm the one who uh, who who left, you know. So that we're, they're in Illinois, though, and so there's plenty of water. They don't have to bring it all in. And I've read a lot, uh, maybe this pertains more to California or different states out West, but there seems to be a lot of subsidization, a lot of, for a lot of farms that maybe shouldn't exist. Am I, am I wrong? They should just, those things should be grown where they could naturally grow. And why is it that they don't actually have to pay the price for the, the actual value of the water that they're using? No, you've you've actually touched on something that's really important. There's a lot of of agriculture in the West, particularly Southern California, uh, but even throughout the all the West, um, where there is a lot of farming happening here that that shouldn't be happening here. Um, there's a lot of of Southern California, a lot of the the cash crops grown in Southern California, um, just use an enormous amount of water, and it's all Colorado River water. And and those are it, that that water is subsidized. It it is. Um, it's it can be subsidized through a few different ways. Uh, the the part that the the way that I think is the most um, troublesome is is just in that it's cheap when it should not be. Uh, it, the water is made cheap because it, it's it's hard to set a price on water when it is often local governments that are that are withdrawing the water. And because they don't have any sort of any sort of profit incentive, um, and then it's kind of just stays in that kind of a system right up until when it's used. That it's it's hard to set a good price, and and so you you do see a lot of of farming in Southern California um, and elsewhere where they're they're bringing water in from far away. And in, in the case of of agriculture in Southern California, it's it's mostly Colorado River water that is canaled from from a, a long distance. And uh, th- when it should not be, we have these massive projects that were built in the 20th century, um, these projects that shouldn't have been built in the first place, that where, where we're shipping water where it doesn't need to be going and and growing things that can be better grown elsewhere. And so it it is, it's a huge contributor. And so the the correct course of action then is to set the right price on that water, to make the water more valuable, 
Uh, water, any any good that is scarce, that scarcity is reflected in its price. And we need to adopt that with water. We need to make it very expensive to grow crop, more expensive to grow crops in places like Southern California. Now, as you mentioned, it can be tough to place the the price, the value on that water. What, you know, maybe you can help me understand, I don't know how the price is set for the water that I use right now. I don't know how you determine the market forces. Uh, it depends on how much it's raining, what the level of the river is. No clue how you go about doing that. But other pe- people smarter than me could figure that out, just like they figure out how to price hamburgers. So um, how, do you, how do you go about doing that? Right. So it depends on exactly what, what water you're talking about. Now, when you go home and you turn on a tap, that water is coming from, from typically a, a, a utility company. And that utility is, is either the government or it is heavily subsidized by the government and, and works very closely, closely with state and local governments. And that price is, is the, the, the water bill you pay is typically going to have two parts. It's going to have a use as a consumption part and then a flat rate. The flat rate tends to pay more for the for the infrastructure. It tends to pay more for the uh, the, the employees, the, the overhead. The costs that generally stay the same. They may increase slowly, but they don't have any sort of relation to the availability of water. Consumption rate is typically going to be more related to the availability of water, though it actually is not that related in practice. Uh, and and that is that's the part that I would like to see go up. Now, for most of the country, particularly those who are east of the Mississippi, um, there's not going to be any sort of change in in that. Uh, you mentioned Illinois. I also have family in Illinois, as as it happens, and yeah, there's there's no there's no issue there. Um, but what what I would like to see would to, would to see that that consumption rate go up in places like where I live here in Utah where and that's that's a rate that's typically going to be charged by the by the the either the kilogallon the thousand gallons at the time um, or something similar um, but even that is not the 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 ideal way that we would save water because municipal water use is pretty small uh, that most water in the west is used for agriculture and and Agriculture tends to use water by in shares, and and water shares uh, are are quite complicated, and and the the uh, it varies by state. But and I I know my home state of Utah best, where where a a share is the actual water is owned by the state of Utah. These are waters of the state of Utah, and you are allowed to use an amount a certain amount given within that share. But that amount is not regulated. I should say that amount is not enforced very well, and and it it tends to change depending on the availability of water. And what I would like to see is to see those water shares become come become closer to something like an asset that that these that these farmers have something that they can buy and sell that they can save and trade, and and that would that would incentivize the conservation of these shares, these assets they have. Whereas right now they're kind of just these chunks of water that they have to use or else they will lose their shares. And there's a use it or lose it policy, use lose it or use it mindset that is changing fortunately in more and more states. Um, but that historically has been the norm. 
That's kind of like having a budget surplus and you need to uh, use the rest of it so you don't have a smaller budget the next year. Interesting. That's exactly right. Yeah, see, I have no clue how all of this works. I just, uh, I know what I would like to see, and that is that water has a value. It is a scarce resource. And anytime you don't charge according to something's value, you're going to be incentivized to use more of it than what you normally would. I always use the uh, example, you know, at my home, I'm not going to turn the AC lower than 68 69 because i'm trying to watch my i'm trying to watch my electric bill when i go to a hotel i crank that thing all the way down as low as i possibly can because it doesn't matter how much i use and that's basically your kind of your subsidized water well when i'm worried about paying more when i use more at my house i will conserve more of that energy when i go to a hotel i don't care about conserving energy because i can use as much as i want that's right that that's exactly what it is and and we've we've historically kind of made farming this this is this is exactly the opposite of how it should be we've made agriculture and farming closer to the hotel where we just say you have this share you have this room and you can make it as cold as you would like and and that you can use as much water as you would like that's changing in utah and that's changing in most states colorado did it a long time ago and uh, and we're seeing that that change and it's a good change that we're we're making it incentivizing conservation This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Don't you wish life came with a user manual? I know I've needed that many times in the past, but unfortunately, we don't get that user manual. You're just sort of left to figure it out on your own and hope you're making the best decisions. Maybe it's a career change, a relationship. Maybe you're a new parent. It's pretty easy to feel very stuck. Well, we don't have that user manual, but we do have BetterHelp. Therapists can help you figure out that whole stuck feeling help you build better coping skills and work through your tough decisions. Now, I've done therapy before. In fact, some of the best life changes I've made came while I was talking to a therapist. It was tough at the time, and I know I didn't want to do it. I didn't know how it was going to work out, but I am glad that I did it. It's not really about a therapist making your decisions for you, by the way. It's about becoming a healthier version of yourself so you can make the best decisions on your own. As I've mentioned before, our co-host, Charlie, is a consistent user of BetterHelp as well. He loves it, and I know BetterHelp is helping him make it through the tough times. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash GML. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash GML. Well, that's what I was going to ask what the political feasibility of this was, because uh, maybe uh, maybe 50 years ago, the farmers had a lot bigger sway uh, with everyone. I would assume that as there's less and less farmers, maybe a little bit less... Uh, uh, less way in politics with everyone. So is it becoming more politically feasible to get rid of some of these subsidizations that we've had in the past? I think it is. Uh, and what you're seeing actually is you're seeing this movement is, is led by the farmers. The farmers want to conserve on a, on like a, a large scale they want conservation they don't want this water to go away they they want water in the great salt lake they but they also want water for their crops and so what they're seeing is they're they're seeing things like like the ability to lease water shares 
as something that benefits them because now they have they can look at at their the the the, the water year when when they're planning their their uh, their next season of growing they can look at the the past water year and see and make a pretty good guess about the availability of water they're going to have this growing season and decide how much do they want to grow how much of their fields do they want to fallow and and then how much water can they now lease because now they may get more money by leasing some of this water rather than using it on crops that aren't going to grow very well this year and so that that is a good thing that that's something that that farmers are leading and and this is kind of what I was talking about earlier when you allow the the local the the the, the those with skin in the game the the farmers whose water is running through the ditch on their property you let them make these decisions they will actually make the decisions if you let them they will make they will conserve if you let them conserve as opposed to to what the you know i was responding in my latest article in the salt lake tribune to an editorial in those pages uh, proposing that we employ public trust doctrine which would just say that the state government has a right to this water and we're just going to take it it's basically eminent domain for water and that would have precisely the opposite effect because now the farmers are saying i i know that everyone around me is now out for themselves and i'm going to hoard as much water as the state of utah will let me and i will even and i may even hoard water that they won't let me and that's that's going to accomplish precisely the opposite yeah, I was uh, actually the public trust part was the uh, the next thing I had in here. That's uh, one thing that you bring up in that article. And this public trust, the idea that they just own, that they own these resources. I mean, not to point back towards bad things in history before, but like government deciding that they're just going to allocate uh, specific resources. Uh, typically, you end up with shortages. You end up with people hoarding uh, more than they would actually need. It doesn't go very well. And I... Sometimes I'll get slightly frustrated that we haven't figured that out yet. And I try to not decide that that's because the people in the government have terrible intentions. I like to think that most of the people have good intentions. What do you think about that? Do you think that these are well-intended policies that just don't fit basic economics quite that well? my experience at least in the area of water is that it is well intentioned uh i i work with in my day job a, a, a lot of of um you know very smart people who who deal more in the, the scientific and technical parts of these questions and not so much in the policy uh parts of these questions and and they they come at this with with you know, I, I think i think altruistic motives uh, and i think um, yeah, the best intentions. One, I think they look at at the the selfish actions of farmers and other water users, not just farmers. Not, I don't want to pick on them too much. Um, in fact, I don't think I am at all. Um, but uh, they they look at at what is often selfish uh, actions, far, farmers hoarding water, and they immediately assume that that is they just kind of put that in a vacuum and don't and don't realize they don't think about the kind of environment that the farmers live in and that they live in an environment 
where for for a long time we've encouraged this. We've we've actually um, we've we've made it very painful to do the right thing. We've said you have to use all of this water, or else you won't be able to lose use any of it. And then we've come in with veiled threats to simply take water from those who who uh, who waste. And the real message there is not that I should conserve. The real message is I'm going to use as much as I can while I still can, because someday this all may be gone. So it's actually and, incentivizing and that, waste. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So it, I think it actually kind of puts fear in the hearts of a lot of water users. And and so, uh, you know, I think a lot of it's just just kind of a misunderstanding. We, we don't understand the 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 environment that that the farmers live in and i think when we do understand the environment they're in we understand that we can actually they're happy to conserve as long as they know that 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 water is still there that that right that property right is still their property right and they can benefit from conservation and I think that's that is fortunately something that's starting to change in the last just the last the, the last year has been the most promising in the Serena, I would say, at least uh, it, particularly in my home state of Utah. Um, I'm seeing less of it, frankly, outside of the Colorado River Basin. Um, but I, I think it's moving in the right direction. So when it comes to doing these shares of water, and that is a new concept that I that I've never never heard of before. But in this part of the country, it's just not something that. Uh, we've needed to think about, I guess. Um, is that something that would be done privately, like a private entity handling this, or is this still government operated? They're just going to have more of a market incentive for the water. Because my, my assumption would be uh, if someone took this as, oh, we're just going to privatize all the water supply, there's going to be a giant water monopoly in there. And then they're going to, you know, the price of water is going to spike up and everyone's going to die. So how could you uh, help with people's fears when it comes to that? Well, the water shares typically that the the actual water of within a given share belongs to the state. And what you have is a, a right to use this water that belongs to the state. Now that, that is kind of the, the extent that that is the right way to do this or not is kind of a separate discussion, and it's an interesting one. But I, I think that that the the principle I think can be maintained with while also keeping that kind of that that state of things uh, as a you know. But the the shares typically come from a canal company, which is a local a, a kind of a local conglomeration of private share owners. And that that is specific to a region. And so I, I live near the Bear River, which is the Bear River is the largest river uh, that contributes water to the Great Salt Lake. So there are smaller tributaries to the Bear River. And typically, like each one of those tributaries will have its own canal company that then distributes that water um, in within that region. And so I, I would say that there's actually um, there's actually I think very little threat of some kind of monopolistic uh, corporation coming in and and taking over 
um, at least at least uh, aside from the state itself. <laughs> and uh, because th- this is this is limited to a region, and if you know, for example, you might have the 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 Cub River is is one river that is a major tributary to the Bear River, and so the the Cub River canal companies associated with the Cub River are are not going to um, are not going to interfere with the the canal companies to to you know say the Green River, which is another one nearby, and that. I think that is typically maintained, but it's an interesting question. I, I I would like to look more into that. If you know the risk of of kind of monopolistic tendencies um, in those canal companies, I I think it's worth looking into. It's just it's something since I'm very uh, libertarian, you know, small smallest government possible. I, I look at privatizing everything, and when it comes to water, I understand that there are. Uh, it, it's not exactly as if my libertarian principles are easy to apply to every single thing. I like to think that the market will figure that out, but I know what someone online is going to say. They're going to talk about the monopoly that's going to pop up and uh, how we won't have any more water. Actually, as someone who was trying to sell water would have the incentive to make sure they could keep selling water would be one of the things I would answer that with. But so what's some... You know what's coming up in the future right now for your area? Are there new? Uh, were there any ballot initiatives? Are there new things that people in the area are working on to kind of expand this idea? And how's that whole idea being perceived uh, where you are right now? Yeah. So earlier this year, the state of Utah um, actually passed a bill that uh, that allows for the private leasing of water shares. So now in stream flow. Water conservation is now a beneficial use. So if you lease your water share or a part of your water share, you don't lose it. That is, lease it for conservation. You don't lose it. Um, and that that is a huge step forward. The problem is, is that who is going to who is going to pay for that? Who is going to buy a lease for water that isn't going to be used? And the obvious answer there is, is the state of Utah. And and so that that was another bill that was passed. Is, is a large trust was set up in the state of Utah that w- started with forty million dollars and another forty million of, of of another forty million dollars of matching private donations. Uh, that that so an eighty million dollar trust that is going to purchase th- these leases for in-stream flows. So basically, buying water shares that will be that will stay in the river. And, and stay there for conservation. And the goal is to, for that water to get to the Great Salt Lake. That, that's a huge step forward. And that that trust hopefully will only grow. And, and you know, that was, I, I would say, I will brag about my home state of Utah and that um, one of the, the problems that the problem that state has found itself in is that it has this huge, this crisis on its hands. Frankly, the Great Salt Lake um, is, in, is in a crisis. And, but what it also has is it has a, a bunch of money. It has huge surpluses. We're looking at a three billion, yeah, three billion dollar surplus next year, and that that's huge for a, a small state like ours. And uh, so, you know, a little shout out for for you know fiscal responsibility mm-hmm. and balanced budgets by a state government. And now, because now we now have this capacity to solve this problem, um, thanks to to you know a balanced budget year after year. And uh, that's going to go a, a long ways. Is is 
saving water that way, just incentivizing um, to, to, for the benefit of local users. And I, I think that another another thing I, I'm, I'm seeing more of more and more talk about is is water banking, um, and that's something that that I would like to see more of. Uh, it, that that is where where private water shares are stored in, in a bank. Where it, again, this is going to be similar to the canal companies, where you have have uh, small associations of users in, in a specific region using putting shares aside, just like you would put money in a bank, and and that is is uh, you if you're not using water, you can put it in this bank, and then you will get you could be paid for it if someone else wants to use it. And that actually encourages conservation on the whole, because over time, more will want to save than will want to use. That that, that would be the idea. Um, and then as, as these water shares be, start to be seen more as an asset with, with more value, then what you start to see is you start to see an incentive to actually uh, agricultural optimization, which is just a fancy word for um, new techniques in farming that will save water. And this is another very promising area where you're now, now that farmers have more of an incentive to save, they have more of an incentive to innovate. And and that's something that I think is just huge. There's a lot of potential in this arena. And, and you're, you're seeing it more um, with particularly around alfalfa, which is you know what cows eat. Um, and and that, that is a huge water user. Um, very thirsty crop, and you're seeing more optimization um, for that specific crop here in Utah, and I think you're also seeing it in Southern California as well, and and that that is very promising, kind of in the long term, um, is is making farming more of a a uh, water efficient farming, basically. There's also great incentive in there uh, as you get into the water banking and the water as an asset to make sure that you keep the water clean from pollution and make sure you have high high quality water. If you've got a, a water market out there, uh, the have yeah. higher value water, the cleanest water, the you know you don't want to pollute your asset that you have. I love where this is going. This is great. That, that's exactly right. I, I would uh, one of one of the most frustrating but telling stories in the American West related to water was the EPA, uh, the EPA spilling you know, hundreds of thousands of gallons of toxins into the San Juan River basin uh, back in like 2015, and polluting just entire rivers that to this day are not fully restored because of that. The EPA has no incentive. Or almost no incentive outside of like a faint political incentive to actually preserve the water that they're charged to preserve. But when you when you make water a valuable asset, and 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 to some extent it has been for a long time, and that's why private producers, particularly agriculture, you don't see the contamination on nearly the level as what you see from from the EPA. <laughs> Well, we'll have to, uh, I think we'll have to continue this conversation on some other time because I really like where this is going. We're solving a lot of problems here. Uh, but for now, I want to have you let everyone know where they can go to read more of your content and uh, follow what you're doing on a daily basis. Yeah, sure. Uh, I write 
mostly Utah-based publications. Most recently in Salt Lake Tribune, uh, you can just Google Micah, M-I-C-A-H, Safeston, S-A-F-S-T-E-N. Uh, just just Google my name in Salt Lake Tribune, and, and that's where I've written two most recent pieces on, on water conservation. Um, you can find me on Twitter, Micah R. Safeston, um, just at Micah R. Safeston. And uh, so I, I post a lot of my writing up there as well. That's great. Micah, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And like I said, love to have you back on sometime to dive even deeper into it. Uh, but other than that, I just want to tell you, everyone, go to the links. They're in the show notes. Go follow Micah on Twitter and read all of his stuff. And uh, Micah, thanks so much. Have a great day. Thank you. You too.